Amen. Thank you, Terry. So again, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. This summer, we're talking about what it means to live from the inside out. That's the title of our series, as you can see on the screen behind me. And we mean by that, that we should be people that are acting in response to the way that we're being acted upon internally. For Christians, that's by God's Spirit living in us, rather than be people who are acting in response to the way we're being acted upon externally by what the Bible calls the world, which is for sure happening to all of us. And that's what it means to be a person of character or virtue, as we talked about last week, that you're living from a wealth of internal resources and the good news is that Christianity makes this uniquely possible, and it's why, if you're not a Christian, I would say to you, I think you ought to consider becoming one. Romans 12, Paul wrote to the Christians there in Rome, and he said this. He said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And those two words stand side by side with one another. Conform describes external things pushing their way into your internal life. And it happens in all kinds of ways. It can be as something as simple as an argument with a child. Have you ever noticed how easily it is to get swept up into their emotion and irrationality and become emotional and irrational yourself in engaging with them? Yeah. Happens to me all the time. That's conformed. The external stuff is pushing its way into your internal life. But transform there means that you're becoming something different from the inside out. The word is actually metamorphosis in Romans 12 too. It describes a change of substance or even of a state of something, this profound inner change, not something that just happens on the surface of a person's life. So people who've been changed like that bring change, Paul says. And so the key, back to that example, to parenting an emotional, irrational child is for you to remain calm and for your calm to conquer their chaos. That's what kids need. And so that's what you need to be a parent. But that's just a small example of this is what we need to be faithful and to live uh, lives that are flourishing in all of life. So Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Now, that's the big stuff. That's the big pressures, he says, but be transformed. In other words, we live in a culture that is hostile to our faith. The world exerts an enormous pressure to squeeze us into its mold. And it's very subtle sometimes, but we must be different because of the way that God is working in us. And if we're different, the way Paul talks about there in Romans 12, we will make a difference. Now, what's particularly helpful about that Romans 12 passage is that it also shows us how we can live from the inside out and not from the outside in. And it says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, you have to think which is why uh, we have chosen uh, the next step in this Second Peter passage for our sermon topic this morning. As we read together in just a minute, you'll see Peter says, supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. That's the third thing. And so we have to live from our theology, which means we have to learn how to think theologically. And that's what we're going to look at in all these texts. You'll see it's a little overwhelming, isn't it? All that we have to read on the back of the insert of your worship folder there this morning. But bear with me because this is an important subject. The Bible has a lot to say about it, and we wanted to see from some of the different places in the scriptures on the subject of what it means for us to be people with the right kind of knowledge, the kind of knowledge that works its way out of us and into the world to make a difference. So let's read together, beginning in 2 Peter 
uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Then we're going to read in 2 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 8, Matthew 11, James 13. I'm just going to read it as if it's one passage. You have the references there for you. Let's begin. 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, Paul says, and then he gives us eight qualities, which is the, the topics that we're, that these are the topics we're looking at, each of them in turn, every week this summer. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge, see, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this theme of knowledge. And then from 2 Corinthians 10 and the rest of the passages, for though we walk in the flesh, Paul writes, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every cap thought captive to obey cross Christ. We know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, end quote. This, quote, knowledge, unquote, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And then from the Gospels, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, the things that Paul just spoke about, the things that are true of the gospel, hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly unspiritual and demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there will be disorder in every vile practice but the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable gentle open to reason full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace this is God's word amen now we're going to talk about knowing this morning the right kind of knowing, the kind of knowing that can change uh, and make a difference, make a difference and change things uh, in your life and in the lives of those around you. And we're going to see three things about this knowing. We're going to see that it's important in three ways. It's important that you know, and it's important what you know. And thirdly, it's important how you know. And when those three things come together, when you realize that it's important that you know and what you know and how you know, then that kind of knowing, the knowing that flows from those three things is the knowing that can change the world. Now, one note before we get into this this morning, and you'll see in some of these texts that the word knowledge and the word wisdom are kind of used interchangeably. I've heard a lot of people talk and try to splice that and talk about how one is different from the other. And, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, you can just kind of talk that to death. I want to say to you this morning in the Bible, I'm not sure that there are really two different things. 
they're used interchangeably in most cases, and we're going to use them interchangeably this morning, except to say that wisdom, and we'll get to this at the end, wisdom is really what the Bible means by true knowledge. And so you might say it this way, you can know and not be wise, but you can't be wise and not know. Okay, so let's don't get knotted up about whether the word is knowledge or wisdom, because in the Bible, real knowledge, the end of knowledge is this idea of wisdom. So... Having said that little caveat there, let's get into uh, the, the scope of these texts this morning and say first, the first thing I want you to see is how, how it really is true that it matters that you know. It matters that you know. And I think we can infer this from the Second Peter text because he says there, supplement your faith, verse 5, with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And so uh, in many ways, these are building blocks that he, he's putting one or you know he's putting one block on top of the other. It all begins with faith. That's the first thing in the Christian life. But he says that's not enough. You have to add or supplement to your faith virtue. In other words, your faith has to begin to show up in your life and make you a morally winsome person. That was what we talked about last week. But then this week, the third block, building block that he's he's constructing here is that the way that you get faith and the way actually that your faith begins to work its way into your life so that you become a person of virtue is through knowing. It matters that you know. Now, let's look at this 2 Corinthians 10 passage in a little more detail here. That's going to be what we really focus on in this part of uh, the sermon this morning. And there Paul says that the real fight in the Christian life is a fight to know. Listen to the way he puts it, if I can find it in my, in my Bible here. He says it like this. He says, uh, chapter 10, for... Well, he says, verse 3, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against, according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Stronghold there means a castle or a fortress. It's, it's this vivid picture that there are spiritual fortresses, conglomerations of evil that advance the cause of evil in the world. He defines these strongholds very clearly. Look, look at what this stronghold is, verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So the strongholds that, that advance evil in the world are these arguments and lofty opinions that take the place of true knowledge of God in people's lives. And so the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a battle of the mind. It's a battle of ideas. It's, it's of knowing. So the strongholds of evil that you're up against, you know, in your own heart, if you're trying to parent kids in your kids, if you're a teacher, you know, in the people, the kids there in your classroom, whatever the case might be, the strongholds of evil are worldly arguments and opinions that deceive people from the true knowledge of God. And the weapon of righteousness and peace is truth. Right doctrine. It's the right thinking that accompanies discipleship to Jesus. So Paul says in the very next verse, verse 5, So we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now look at that. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so the implication is that right behavior follows right thinking. Now I would tweak that a little bit. I would say it this way to you. I would say that right behavior follows right believing, and right believing follows right thinking. It's not simple knowledge of facts that's important. It's the believing. It's what Edwards called an experiential knowledge. After all, knowing God in the Bible is eternal life. And that's a relational term for sure. It's more than just knowing about God. But here's the thing. You can know about God and not know him, but you can't know him and not know about him. 
Knowing God is more than just arguments and opinions, but it's not less than those things. I, I, I mean, I, I can tell you after 22 years of, of marriage, I know Ashley. I know lots about her. I know more about her today than I, than I did when we got married, but when I say I know her, I mean something different. I mean that I can anticipate her reactions and I know the different tones in her voice. One word is all it takes, usually, like one word. Hello, and how she answers the hello, I know. And I know what those tones mean and I can read her body language because you see, knowing is more than facts. Knowing is a relational dynamic. And so the Bible says that real knowing of God, I mean, real, a, a relationship with God, eternal life is this idea of knowing God. And so it matters, it matters that you know. But there's some applications we can draw from this as well. And the first, I think, is as you read this 2 Corinthians, this Second, Second Corinthians 10 text, you, you, you see Paul very clearly calling us to be engaged in the thought arenas of our culture, but in a certain way. And that's my point, I think. We're talking about how we can live from the inside out this summer, right? How, how it's possible to not be internally affected by what's going on externally in our lives, but allowing the work of God in us to begin to move through us and out from us to infect our environments. And that's true of our knowing. That's true of our knowing as much as it's true of anything. For 2,000 years, Christian theology has been changing the world so profoundly that it's hard to even describe to you so profoundly that uh, people are breathing the air of Christian theology as they trash Christianity in our culture. So profoundly, it's really hard to even describe. Paul's missionary practice was to go to cultural centers of the cities he was doing ministry in. So whether if he was ministering to religious people like the synagogue or uh, if he was ministering to irreligious people, to the market squares, or the places where people gather in Greek culture where ideas were being spread and debated. But if you read Acts very carefully, it uses particular words to describe his ministry there. It says that he went to reason with people from the scriptures. He explained and he proved, Acts 17 says. He didn't all caps yell at people. And it's something we should learn from, I think, because Christians today and their cultural engagement on social media in particular are too preachy. And I think we, we're, we're so preachy because uh, we've lost our ability to think. Our preachiness is a mask for the insecurity with which uh, we live towards just good thinking. It's easier to preach. And so it matters that we think well. Obedience often begins with a change of your knowing uh, the word repentance in the Bible literally means to change your mind. And so the first step to changing behavior, look what he says. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Where does the obedience come from? Right? You see the connection between knowing and thought, thinking, and, and obeying. And so the first step in changing behavior, according to the scriptures, is changing your thinking. In Luther's 95 Theses, the first of those 95 Theses was all of life is repentance, which means that Christians should always be changing their thinking. Now, I am afraid that we're not known for that in our world. But rather the opposite, that we're these crusty people who have had one original thought like 2,000 years ago and have never thought beyond that. But of all people, we should be people who are constantly changing our thinking, changing our views because of what we're learning as we study the scriptures and as we listen to our neighbors. And so there's, there's a, a call to cultural engagement here, but of a unique kind. But then secondly, 
there's also just an application to our sanctification, to becoming more like Jesus here. It says, take every thought captive. So good thinking is a very practical thing. Uh, for one, it means you have to be committed to not let your emotions run away with you. So Christianity is not stoicism. Uh, both our thinking, both our thinking and our feeling, have been deeply affected by sin. Both our thinking and our feeling are being redeemed in Christ. But if you follow the example of Paul's letters, for instance, he is addressing always. It seems like he's always. Notice it the next time. We're going to read through some of his letters here in community Bible reading. Pay attention. He's always addressing the errant behavior in the churches by calling them back to what they know. How many times does he say, listen, you know. For you know, it's one of his favorite things to say. How do you find anxiety in your life? Jesus said, you look at the birds and you look at the flowers and you make an argument to your heart. You don't indulge your emotional life when it's going bad. Don't do that. You take yourself in hand. You talk to your heart with the truth instead of listening to your heart. You say, yeah, this is what I feel. You gotta be honest. You gotta start with what you feel. You gotta say, yeah, this is what I feel, but this is what I know. Until your feelings come in line with your knowing. I love the lines of the old hymn. Soul then know thy full salvation. Rise or sin in fear and care. And it goes on to say, remember, think what spirit dwells within you. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win you. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? You hear that? Think. Think. That's the way out of an anxious heart. That's the way out of despondency and despair a lot of times. Sometimes you need more than that. We're not, I'm not debating that. But this is, that, that's the way out of whatever rut you find yourself in. Think it matters what you know. Okay, that's the first thing. Secondly, though, not only does it matter what you know, it matter, I mean, excuse me, that it matters that you know, but it also matters what you know. If you're going to make a difference, if your knowing is going to make a difference anyway with others, uh, I, we were at General Assembly, as I said this past week, and one of, our, one of our thought leaders in our denomination is a guy named Sean Lucas, who was a professor at Covenant Seminary for a long time and is now a pastor in Memphis. And um, he, we, we had a, you know, that, that kind of um, back and forth snipping at one another can become uh, problematic for us uh, as children of the Reformation. And so... Um, we had a seminar on what it looks like to be civil and I mean, past, get this, pastors getting together talking about what it looks like to be civil and not violate the ninth commandment, which is don't slander uh, in our use of social media and online presence and that sort of thing, right? And so Sean Lucas is talking to this about this and I thought he made a great point. He, he said, um, when you, you know, the calls for both uh, grace and truth, amen? We're supposed to be both people of both those things. You with me? Grace and truth. But here's what, and then he tweeted this later, and this was his tweet. He said, not just grace, and not just truth, and not just truth and grace, but in the scripture, it's always grace and truth. Grace always comes first. Grace always comes first. Why? Because the central tenet of Christianity is grace. And so the, the point is that grace comes first because grace changes truth in important ways because it changes the person bringing the truth in important ways. And so the gospel is the good news, and here's, here's the what we know. It matters what we know. Here's what we know. The gospel is the good news that we are saved not by knowing but by being known. That's an amen moment just in case you were wondering. Thank you. We're saved by know, not by knowing but by being known. So this 1 Corinthians 8 passage now, if you just... 
make your way down the sheet with me as we walk through these. We know, <clears throat> we know that all of us possess knowledge. Do you see how that's in quotes? Paul's mocking. He's being sarcastic, uh, which is hard for me because I would like to think sarcasm, I have a hard time with sarcasm, but Paul found it helpful, so maybe it is helpful sometimes. We know, quote, all possess knowledge. This, quote, knowledge, do you see that? He's being snarky here, seriously. This knowledge, which isn't real knowledge, he says, and the way I know it's not real knowledge is this kind of knowledge puffs up, but true knowledge, but love, builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Do you see the turn of phrase? The turn of phrase means that if you know God, it's because he first knew you. That you didn't come to that knowledge all by yourself. It's a result of something God has done towards you. And that's what we mean by grace. Christians believe that we're saved because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That Jesus came into the world to live a life of perfect obedience to the Father. The one that the law demands of all of us. He died upon a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. He was raised on the third day and is seated in heaven and has sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we might know him and so that we might obey him. But we didn't do any of that. You with me? We didn't do any of that. It's all because we're known by God. The origin of it is God's knowing of us, not our knowing of him. And so here's, here's a doctrine if you want to just like ponder the doctrine of what I think Paul's saying here. He's saying this. If you believe that you're saved... By knowing, your knowing will be obnoxious. And you'll be right, but you'll be right in all the wrong ways. But if you believe that you're saved by being known, then your knowing will be transformative. See, it matters what you know. Now let's take each of those in turn. Paul, Paul talks in Corinthians about the person whose knowledge puffs them up. In other words, knowledge is a really great way of making yourself feel superior to other people. And then from that place, you can look down on and you can talk down to other people who don't know all the things that, that you know that they should know. Now, this was a problem for the Corinthian church. So what was happening? They were turning knowledge into a righteousness, into a way of puffing themselves up. In order, they said in order to be right with God, you have to have the right doctrine. Now, that's true. Let's make that clear that's true but this is something more they've gone a step beyond that they've said that right in other words the way to be right with God is not through the work of Jesus it's just enough for you to know some stuff and it's actually a form of moralism the way they've done this and moralism, moralism says in order to be right with God you have to be right you have to believe right you have to do right it's your rightness <clears throat> and unfortunately what happens is that turns knowing into a competition with winners and losers. And so James writes about this too down in that James passage in verses 14 and 15 where he says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And let me explain that for a minute. He says, if you think that you have to be right to be right with God, then it'll turn everybody else into a competitor. And here's the thing, the way our sinful hearts prop up our own rightness in that whole system I'm describing for you is by doing this, by saying, you're wrong, 
and I'm not you. Over and over and over and over again, you're wrong, and I'm not you, therefore I'm right. Now, think about the way that affects your knowing. James uses the word. He says it becomes a boast. You'll use your knowledge as a boast. So Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, it's a terrible thing when a man who is right is right in such a way or is right in such a wrong spirit that he does more harm than good by being right. But then there's the person who knows that what matters most is not knowing but being known by God. That is the person who knows that we are saved by grace. And it's God's knowing of us and not our knowing of him that matters because ultimately in Christian theology, salvation is what he does and not what we do. And this affects what we do with the truth because the truth is, don't forget it. See, it infects you with the truth and you don't forget the truth. What's the truth? I'm a sinner saved by grace. Not because I'm, and I'm saved, not because uh, I'm better than anybody else, which if you just stay on that, it takes away any sense of superiority. So when Christians use the truth as a weapon to self-righteously condemn those who don't believe the way they do. Can I say that again? When Christians use the truth as a weapon to self-righteously condemn those who don't believe the way they do, that's the most unchristian thing you could ever do. That's being false to the truth, James says. More than that, it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Because it's a very denial of the truth of Christianity. Which is, I was wrong. And in all of my wrongness, Jesus didn't condemn me, but he came to save me. And he loved me, even in my wrongness. It matters what we know. We're, being, we're saved by being known, not by knowing. And if we know, it's because we're known. But thirdly, we're coming to the end here. Thirdly, it matters that you know, it matters what you know, but there's a third thing, and it matters how you know. We need to add knowledge to our faith and our virtue. So how do we get knowledge? And there are just a couple things I'd like to say about this. And the first is this, the very first thing, the starting place to the kind of knowledge that Peter writes about in 2 Peter uh, 1.5, the very first thing to knowing is to know that you don't know. I want to point you to a couple places. The first is 1 Corinthians 8 where Paul says, Verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. (laughs) Now, a little bit more about context there. The Corinthian church was embroiled in controversy. There were factions. And so the 1 Corinthians 13 passage is in the letter because they were so bad at love. They prioritized ministry success and giftedness over love. They did the same thing with knowledge. So they they, they just loved knowledge. And so their knowing was more important than loving. That was their problem. Uh, their knowing had become a righteousness and they were using it to judge and condemn others, becoming puffed up, as Paul writes there. And so Paul's doctrine here is that if your knowing causes you to begin to look down on other people who don't know like you do, there's a problem with your knowing. The first step to the kind of knowing described by Peter is to know that no matter how smart or read or educated or experienced you are, there's always, always more that you don't know than that you do know. And that should make you humble, teachable, willing to listen and learn from other people. So the wise person in the Bible is contrasted with the fool who's right in his own eyes, 
And I've been thinking a lot about this because I've been noticing something about myself that I just need to confess to you so that you can correct me when I do it. I'm giving you permission to do this, okay? Or I want to give you permission. Can I give us carte blanche just to correct one another when we notice one another doing this? Because it's a really awful practice. And here's what I do. I'll, uh, I'll be talking with somebody, and I've noticed how often when somebody begins to tell me something, I don't even let them get through the sentence before I interrupt them and say things like, oh, oh, I know, I know, I know, oh, yeah, I know. And I do it all the time because I'm a fool. Instead of listening, I don't even let you finish what you're saying before I exert that I already know what, I have nothing to learn from you. I already know what you're going to tell me. And it really is because I'm a fool. So Proverbs 4 says, the beginning of wisdom, did you notice this? Terry read it. The beginning of wisdom is this. And you're like, oh, what's the beginning of wisdom? The beginning of wisdom is this. Oh, here, I'm going to get the answer. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. What? In other words, the wise person is the person who knows they need wisdom. They listen. They don't interrupt when others are telling them something because they know that they don't know. And they know that in every encounter they have something to learn. And so that's the first thing. But then the second thing I want to say to you about how we know is that knowledge is a gift. And this is why I included this Matthew 11 passage where Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That is an amazing, profound statement. God has so ordered things that the wise of this world are left without true wisdom and it is the simple and the humble and those Jesus refers to as little children there who are granted it. And God wants it this way. He hides true knowledge from the know-it-alls. Lest they or we begin to think that smarts get you into heaven. Because he wants us relying on him for everything, everything, including our knowing. Now, if you take this all the way back to the the beginning of the human race, God made the first man and the first woman in such a way that they were dependent upon him for their knowing. He said, don't eat this tree or you'll die. And then he didn't explain it beyond that. And that's wholly unsatisfactory for most of us. Because we got to know the whys, Right? We can't just take something at face value. It's got to make sense to us before we agree to whether or not it's a good idea. But God says, don't do this, and I'm not going to tell you why, because he designed them to trust him. And what was the temptation that got them? Do you remember? What was the promise of the serpent? You will be like God, knowing good and evil, it says. And the woman saw the tree that it was desired to make one wise. And so her sin was a desire to know but to know for herself, to know apart from God, to define right and wrong on their own terms. There's only one way to know God, according to Jesus in Matthew 11, and that is to know him as a child. My kids were ganging up on Ashley and I the other night at dinner, and I had to remind them uh, that the years of their collective wisdom is only 61 years, which is far less than the 88 years between their parents, and I won't tell you how many of those are mine and how many of those are Ashley's, because I'm not supposed to do that in public. So we at least, we're at least 25% smarter than them still, which is so, so comforting. Just on pure math. So we've got them for a little while longer. Good knowing is childlike because now we know in part, the scripture says. Paul goes on in that verse to say, then shall I, be, then shall I know fully even as I've been fully known, but not yet. 
it's, the turn of phrase is there, too. Every time Paul starts talking about knowing, he can't stop himself from saying, you know, the big deal isn't that we know. The big deal is that we're known. And even there he says, one day we'll know in full. Isn't that, isn't that great? Isn't that fun to think? One day we'll know in full. Probably a trillion, billion, million years from now, we'll know in full. But not now. Now all of our knowing is only knowing in part. We don't, we don't know far more than we do know. And so whatever knowledge we have, we didn't come to it on our own, and it's not complete, and there's always something for us to learn. And Jesus makes this explicit. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him, Matthew 11. So you can't know God on your own. The only way to know God is for him to make himself known. That's how we know, is that he makes himself known. And, and I just started thinking about it. You know, I was so struck reading Numbers 9 this past week, uh, where it says uh, in Numbers 9, 23, uh, at the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord. So in the wilderness, God's people didn't have all the knowledge they needed. Moses didn't know exactly how each step was going to go. I mean, you're right. I mean, he had no idea what was happening. Only the Lord knew because God wanted them to be dependent upon him to lead them. And so knowledge is daily bread. We need to hear from God every day. On a daily basis, about that day, we need, we need new insights. We need new words from God all the time. Now, don't, don't hear me saying that I'm not talking about something beyond the Scripture, okay? I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want you to, to hear me saying that. I, but, but listen, one of the patterns of Jesus' life was to go away to meet with God ahead of big moments in his ministry. You see it. All the commentators notice this. And so he didn't act like he had all the knowledge that he needed on his own. And if that was his pattern, it should be our pattern too. We need to hear from the Lord. And this is... I think probably what I would say, if there was something that bothered me about this past week with all of the pastors there in Dallas at the same time, we dealt with some heavy, important stuff. And I just was struck walking the morning after I read that over to the assembly hall thinking, you know, we need to hear from God. Not a new word, not something beyond the scripture, but a specific word from God about the specific situations we're facing because all of our knowing is incomplete. But what happens is, is what happened to those men is we all come into the room entrenched in our already decided upon positions. And it's bad knowing. We spent hours debating and seconds praying. And it's world conformity. Because so much of the discourse in our society is just like that. Again, look at social media. Look at our political debates. We don't come together to listen and to learn. We come together with one agenda, to get our point across. And to show how we're right and everybody else is wrong. And it's why we're a nation of fools. We've already decided what we know. I don't have anything else to learn from anybody else. And it's why there's a famine of the word of God in our land. Now to finish up, I want to point you to where the Bible talks about the kind of knowing that should characterize every person who gets everything I've said, who understands that it's important that you know and what you know and how you know. And it's there in James 3. And there it's called wisdom. So let me make this point now that wisdom is knowing from the inside out. We're talking about living from the inside out. Wisdom is knowing from the inside out. It's knowing that makes a difference because it's in touch with the reality of what we know and how we know what we know. And we need this kind of knowing in our world today. What James calls there, verse 13, do you see? He calls it the meekness of wisdom. Isn't that a great phrase? All wisdom is meek. The meekness of wisdom. True knowing is always meek. Not weak. Meek. There's a difference. It's not wimpy. But restraint. 
So all of our knowing should be characterized by restraint. I should restrain myself from saying, oh, I know, I know, I know, to drown you out when you try to tell me something. And then he shows us what this meekness of wisdom looks like as he goes down. If you look at the chapter, uh, verse 17, he gives us this beautiful list. He says, but the wisdom from above, which is in contrast to the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, full of jealousy and selfish ambition because our knowing has put us in competition with one another. This wisdom is, first of all, pure. That means it's modest is what that word means. It doesn't make much of itself. It's peaceable, which means it's not violent or argumentative. It's gentle. In other words, not pushy, not all caps shouting. It's temperate. Open to reason, James writes, which means something like curious and not closed-minded, willing and eager to learn, unsure. Paul Miller makes the point that love is often unsure because there's always something to learn from the other person. You don't come into a relationship knowing everything the other person needs. You actually have to hear from the other person. Um, Full of mercy there means affected by the needs and concerns of others. Uh, In other words, all truth is incarnational truth. Impartial. This is going to be a hard one. Impartial means literally something like compromising. Trying to find the middle ground of understanding with the other person and so that you can talk from that place rather than just what we see all the time of just people just talking past one another. Sincere, it says there, which literally is the word for hypocrite with a negation uh, in, in a prefix of negation there. So literally not a hypocrite, which means something like this. And this is a profound thought for me that sometimes we can hide behind all of our supposed knowing. So these are the things we're told that should characterize Christians in our knowing because they are the very things that characterized our Savior. He was lamb, he was dove, he was mother hen, he was cherishing husband. I am gentle and lowly in heart, he said of himself. But beloved, this is the thing. This is the kind of knowing that can make a difference. It's right here. It's right here. We're promised it right here. If, if God would unleash a, a, a people who would know like this, would change the world it's right here verse 18 this is the hope and i would tell you like write this out pray it for me pray it for you pray it for the church just pray it over uh pray it over social media just pray this listen to verse 18 and then i'm just going to pray this is the promise uh, if we could be people of this kind of knowing a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace Isn't that a great verse? In other words, if peace comes up out of you in the way you know and the way you engage, it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace that we get to enjoy together. Don't you want that? I do. So let's pray for that. So Father, would you do just that? Would you humble us in the remembrance of the great truth of the gospel that you love us But you do not love us because we're not sinners. You love us by the very fact that we are. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, you came not uh, to cuddle up to those that were right and against those that were wrong. You came to us in all of our wrongness. 
and you've made us right, but it's the rightness, it's your rightness given to us. It's not our rightness. It's not a rightness that comes from us. It's an, it's an other's rightness that makes us right with God. It's the rightness that you've accomplished for us. These are the truths of our faith. And so spirit, would you come and drill these truths home to our hearts in powerful ways so that in knowing them, we might become people of great faith, but people of a certain moral aesthetic, people of a moral winsomeness that in our knowing, we may not be easily dismissed because we so undo in the way we know and in the way we talk and in the way we engage the very truths we claim to believe. May it be not be true of us that we would be right, but be right in all the wrong ways and to do more harm in being right than we would otherwise. We don't want that. We want you. Uh, we want a harvest of righteousness and peace. We want your kingdom come and your will be done. That's what you've told us to pray for. And so we pray just for that. But we know it begins with the work you would do in us. And so come even in these last moments we have to be together this morning. Begin that work and then carry forward until you complete it. We believe you for all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's something ironic about people who tend to be very chaotic on the inside, uh, very, very weak, um, lacking in courage in the way that they can be so um, harsh coming out of that. Rather than the person, think about the person who believes what we just sang. What kind of quiet inner confidence, right? That sense of no matter what, it's going to be okay. That's this, the strength within. And the irony is, is that the person who experiences that kind of strength within is a person who's able to be just profoundly gentle and soft towards people. And when you, when you accompany that kind of gentleness with powerful truth, that's transformative. And that is the people that we need to be who sow peace and harvest a harvest of righteousness and peace. But it ultimately is peace that God gives, and that's what these words mean. And so uh, find your heart settled uh, in the love of God if your faith is in the Lord Jesus with these words resonating inside of you and then go speak the truth in love in powerful ways uh, to change those around you. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.